I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we get the opportunity to talk with Professor Reed Lay about China's National Party Congress, which recently met for its five-year assembly. Considering the extraordinary position China is playing on the world stage, the events of this meeting could have ripple effects beyond the nation and across the globe. The Communist Party's Congress began in mid-October and, among other things, culminated in an unprecedented third term for President Xi Jinping, making him the most advantageously powerful leader for China in decades. These revolutionary events come at a pivotal point for the nation. The Chinese economy is facing a series of harmful challenges. The country's COVID-0 policy means ongoing lockdowns, affecting everything from employment to public morale. Technological chip access is being curtailed by actions from the Biden administration, and the spillover from Russia's invasion of Ukraine is affecting China and its international relationships more generally. We asked Professor Lei to help us understand what this all means for the nation and the world, as well as what might emerge as the new set of priorities for China. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Lei. We'd like to start by asking you to explain the National Party Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, held every five years. Can you tell us how this works and how it differs from proceedings, say, here in America? And what are some of the key moments and consequences rising from it? So for people who are not very familiar with the Chinese politics, the Chinese Communist Party is the only ruling party in China. So who is the leadership of the party really matters for the country. For every five years, there's going to be one party congress that elects the central committee of the party. And then after the congress is concluded, the central committee, which is elected by the party congress, will have its first meeting to elect the general secretary and the political bureau. The general secretary and the political bureau will govern the country for the next five years. That's basically how important the party congress is. So we just had the 20th Party Congress for the Chinese Communist Party, and it elected Xi Jinping as the general secretary for his third term. Each term will last for five years, and the new policy bureau. So this is very important. And it also will produce a report, which is prepared by the previous general secretary. Again, this is Xi Jinping one more time, which will lay down the policy direction for the next five years for the party. So this is how it works. So I think people have already read the newspaper. So it set down some, I think we're going to talk about some of the policy directions set by the 20th Party Congress. But one of one of the most record-breaking thing is Xi Jinping is elected for his third term. Because in the past, really, the rule is that the general secretary will just serve for two terms. That's the record for the previous general secretary. That's the record for general secretary uh, Jiang Zemin as well. So it's rule breaking. We still don't know what it means for China and the whole world. 
And I know that you had mentioned President Xi Jinping, so I'm just going to take this opportunity to jump on that really quick here. Let's talk for a minute about President Xi Jinping and the fact that he recently secured his third term in office, making him the most powerful Chinese leader in decades. So how did he manage to accomplish that and what does that mean? It's very complex to say how he managed to do that. At the very beginning, he his first term started in 2012. At the very beginning, nobody expected that he will be able to secure a third term actually at the time. Some people actually speculated that, that he will be a very weak leader. But later afterwards, he waged this anti-corruption campaign aimed at take out the corruptive corrupt officials in China. So that basically allowed him to arrest many of the top officials in both the party and the military. And make no mistakes, those people are really corrupt. So they made the mistakes and they violated the law and they indeed take the bribery. So they were investigated and put into jail. And this allows the General Secretary Xi Jinping to have the opportunity to replace those people by new people. And most of the new people were the people he used to work with or he used to know in the past. So that allows him to have a lot of friends in the Politburo. And in 2018, the central government led by him proposed to amend the constitution. One of the major components of the amendment was to eliminate the term limits for the president. Xi Jinping is the general secretary of the party, is the chairperson of the military commission, and at the same time, the president of the country. His, most, most of his power comes from the party position and the military position. The, the president position is just a nominal position. It's more or less like the president in Germany, the president in Singapore, who, who is not really the de facto leader of the country. The de facto leader of the government in China is the premier, the premier of the state council. At the time, people speculated why he would do that, because there was no term limit for general secretary and the chairperson of the military commission. He wished to uh, eliminate the term limits for a nominal position. That's 2018. Uh, that's, I think, the spring of 2018. And this time, he basically ditched it. He uh, replaced the, not only got the third term, I think that everybody would agree that the, now the bureau is stopped with all of his friends. So all other six members of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, which are the real cabinet of China. So this is the top decision-making body in China, the Standing Committee of the Politburo, which is consists of seven people, including Xi Jinping himself. Uh, so I think the anti-corruption campaign and the amendment to the constitution were laying the foundation for his rise of power and for his third term. So going off of that, what might we expect to see from President Xi Jinping now that he has secured office for a third term? And are there any particular issues or focuses that seem to be at the top of the president's mind right now? So I think nobody would know what he will do because we are not him. But one could speculate what he could do by reading the report that he submitted to the 20th Party Congress. So like the American parties, Right. In those Congress, the party will produce a platform. Right? So by reading that report, which was released yesterday in full the full report, you know, we can see something that we can speculate what he will do in the next five years. Uh, one thing that he mentioned uh, and emphasized in the whole report is to have a new idea of the modernization. Right? He called it the Chinese modernization, which is different from the traditional you know, understanding of modernization. In the past, the word just means 
we, we just have economic growth and industrialization. These are the major components of, of modernization. And it seems that the new concept he coined over here, the Chinese modernization, uh, includes the ideas in addition to economic growth and industrialization. He mentioned many things that I, I think many people would agree with him, I would say, but, uh, but in addition to economic growth. For example, he mentioned environmental protection, he mentioned anti-corruption, he mentioned many th such things. So the, the idea is that economic growth is not the only thing. So here is this signal actually had tremendous implications. So the day after, the stock market had very strong reaction to these remarks and the new team that he appointed. The Hang Seng Index of Hong Kong and the Chinese, stock, uh, Chinese companies listed on the American stock markets, the price decreased by more than 10% or 15%. I think that's the idea. The Hang Seng Index reduced by 6%. So this shows that the market's understanding of his remarks and the Chinese modernization and the new team is that they are not so interested in economic reform and economic growth anymore. So he is interested in something else. So that's my understanding of the new, uh, of the new concepts that he is going to introduce. Another thing is he replaced the premier of the government. So the premier is in charge of the economic policy and the implementation of those policies. Uh, the previous premier served already for 10 years, uh, will step down. And many people in the market speculated that he is going to uh, appoint an, another more liberal-minded official as premier in charge of economic policy. Contrary to the expectation, I would say, he appointed someone who had no experience running the central government in the past. He now appointed the party secretary of Shanghai to be the premier. Now, this person has zero experience running the state council. So some people, investors including, will speculate that this person would not be able to deliver a more liberal-minded economic policies in the future. So that's one concern. Another concern is whether the new government is going to change or eventually eliminate the zero COVID strategy. This is the primary concern for at least the foreign investors. I have some data to share. So this year, I think the American and uh, European companies operating in China, they reported that 25% of them reported that they, will, they, they are considering already left the Chinese market. The number in the previous year was 14% for American companies and 9% for European companies. So that's a huge increase. And the number one concern, the American and European companies operating in, China, in the Chinese market, they reported was the zero COVID strategy because it's going to stop the operation immediately. Whenever the city found some COVID cases, the city is going to be shut down. And the shutdown real is not the kind of shutdown you have seen in, in the United States. Nobody is going to show on the streets. Uh, no company is going to operate. And this is still going on in many parts of China. So in Shanghai, this earlier this year, in April, I believe, uh, Shanghai was basically shut down. And it is the economic center for China. And I would say also for East Asia as well. The whole city was shut down. So it has tremendous impact on the Chinese economy. So these are the concerns that people will have for the new leadership because it seems that General Secretary Xi Jinping and his team, at least in the past one year, they insist on sticking to the zero COVID strategy. So people have concerns about whether the new team will be gradually considering to phase out the zero COVID strategy and eventually 
eliminate the strategy. So these are the implications I can think of. Great. So now let's turn to the economics of the situation. So many countries around the world are facing record high inflation and supply chain disruptions. Broadly, how is the Chinese economy right now? And what are the challenges it has faced recently? Also, could you talk a little bit about how Biden's new restrictions on exporting semiconductor tools impact the Chinese economy? So the government has just released the economic data for the third quarter. So the Chinese economy growed at 3.9% in the third quarter, which is slightly higher than the expectation, 3.7%. So it means that people think that the Chinese economy is doing slightly better than the expectation. So this will put the whole economic growth in the first three quarters at 3%. But this is substantially lower than a target set by the government at the beginning of the year, which was 5.5%. So 3% and 5.5%, there is a huge gap. So it's unclear whether and how the Chinese government is going to close this gap in the final fourth quarter. But the exports were doing fine. Imports and exports in total grew at 9.9% in the third quarter. So this means that the ex somehow the exports was not the huge concern to the Chinese economy. The consumption is also recovering. The third quarter, the consumption grew at 3.5%. In the second quarter, this number is a negative number. Right? So it means that the consumption is also recovering slightly. The primary concern is the real estate development. It's a, it, it grew at a negative 4.4%. So it shows that the real estate development is shrinking in China in the third quarter. I think that's a huge concern because in the past, for people who do not know about the Chinese economy, in the, at least in the first 10 years of this century, real estate development was the primary force for the Chinese economy. The urbanization, right? In, uh, many people migrate from rural China to urban China and they have to build the apartments and sell them to the new immigrants. This number is a huge concern, I will say, to the Chinese economy. And about the Biden's restriction on the semiconductor, I think that's not a new concern to the Chinese economy, a Chinese government. I think the, the whole thing started uh, in the Trump administration. I don't know how it will impact the Chinese economy right away. But I think it's going to have two different effects. The first effect is in the short run, the Chinese economy, the Chinese high-tech companies in, in particular, they are going to have some difficulties in designing and making their products. I think that's a huge concern. For example, Huawei, the company received so many uh, sanctions from the U.S. government, eventually stopped making many of the high-end cell phones. Right, because it doesn't, it could not have access to the semiconductor chips. But the Chinese government now know that the U.S. government is not willing to cooperate, right, to to have this more globalized market. The Chinese government is going to go on a path where it will develop its own supply chain. So there is a term called the, the double circles. It basically means that the Chinese government is going to make the domestic market as the primary market. It will focus on building its own supply chain for the key industries. So I think there are two different effects. In the shorter run, it will be difficult. But in the longer run, the government will put a lot of subsidies, industrial policies to build out its capacity for semiconductors. That's my guess. So let's look a little bit at some of the international relations with China, specifically the U.S. right now. How do you view the Biden administration's policies toward China more generally, especially compared to the previous Trump administration? 
And what are some key differences that you see between the Trump and Biden administrations regarding engagement with China? I think the Biden administration basically continued the Trump administration's China policy. Most of the sanctions, most of the policies were kept by the Biden administration. I, I don't think I don't think there is a fundamental difference between the two governments. When when Biden took power, initially took power, the Chinese government had some hope that the Biden administration would, for example, lift the tariffs uh, on the Chinese products. Uh, So they sent some high-level official delegations to the U.S. side, to the United States, and have some negotiations, and that failed. Because inside the U.S. government, there is a very strong opinion that the, the tariffs are leverage that the U.S. government could have to influence Chinese government. That only weakened slightly when inflation became a primary concern to the U.S. government. For example, uh, Janice Yellen argued that lifting some of the Chinese tariffs would help reduce the inflation in the United States. And then the Biden administration uh, considered to lift some of the tariffs, but I don't think that applied to many of the many Chinese products. So I think it will continue to have those tariffs, and the Chinese government viewed those tariffs as a very strong signal of whether the U.S. government is willing to cooperate. Another thing is, not long ago, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, even though the Chinese government urged her not to do that. So that also is a costly signal from the U.S. government that at least seems to the Chinese side that the U.S. government is not willing to cooperate with with the Chinese government. So I do not think the U.S. from a perspective of the Chinese government, I don't think they see a huge change between the two governments. Both governments were trying to deal with China from a position of strength. They were trying to have more leverage. They were trying to influence the Chinese government's policy towards the direction that that is favored by the U.S. government. I think that's the signal received by the Chinese side. And the Chinese government is also changing as well. Uh, One of the major changes in the 20th Party Congress, which was just concluded, was they also amended the party charter. Now they write into the the party charter that the the party should should have more fighting spirits in the future. The fighting spirits uh, basically means that it will take a more hawkish view towards the unfriendly forces uh, outside China. I think that that mostly targeted at the United States. I think the U.S. side also now sense that the Chinese side will not be very cooperative in the future. So I would say that the era where the U.S. and China cooperate with each other perhaps already passed. Right? In the future, we will see more conflicts and tension between the two countries in the future. And I, and I don't think this trend will be easily reversed by any single leader. Interesting. I know we're going to ask a little bit more about Biden and specifically Taiwan in a little bit, but first I just wanted to circle back to something you had mentioned in a previous answer, which was about China's zero COVID policy. So we know that's been going on for almost three years now. I'm curious, could you discuss the extent of how restrictive these policies have been and how are the Chinese people coping with these COVID restrictions three years into the pandemic? It's a very costly policy. Let me first just start with the positive side of the policy. The positive side of the policy is indeed the death rates of COVID is much, much lower in China. 
because whenever you find a positive case, the person will be put into hospital or into custody, right? Uh, so nobody will have access to this person, right? It restricts the, the freedom of that person who, had the, who is tested positive. That's the positive side of the policy. And uh, people shouldn't forget about this positive side because as we all know in the United States already, more than 1 million people are dead from the COVID cases. But there is a very huge cost for any government to pursue the zero COVID policy. Economically, first of all, as I said, the Chinese government is faced with huge economic problems right now. The service sector basically cannot operate under the zero COVID strategy. For example, those who operate restaurants, right, you will be asked to stop running the restaurant right now and the next day. So many of the restaurants basically didn't survive. The service sector basically couldn't do their normal work. And the people could also die if they do not have the income. So that's basically what we have talked about here with many, many of my Chinese friends. I took taxis quite frequently in Beijing. In the past, it's very difficult for you to catch a taxi in the rush hours. It's not very easy in Beijing. Even at 6 o'clock p.m., it's very easy to catch a taxi. The taxi driver told me that their income decreased by more than 50% because there were no passengers in the past, well, there were many people traveled to Beijing for tourism, for example, right? That contributed to all, a lot of the passengers. And now there are no longer so many tourists to Beijing, both due to the COVID policy as well as due to this 20th Party Congress. The party wants to make sure that it's secure. So it restricts the travel into Beijing and outside of the Beijing. Fiscally, when you implement the COVID, when you implement the zero COVID policy, it means two things. The first thing is you will have to test everybody, right? Otherwise, you don't know who is positive or not. I mean, not just for some people, for the whole city. So how many people are there for one city? I think the average number is like two or three million people for one city. And there are more than 300 prefecture cities in China. You will have to test everybody. And in Beijing, now the policy is you have to be tested once every three days. And those costs are not burdened by everybody. It's burdened by the government. So it puts strong fiscal pressure on local governments because they will have to pay, the, pay for the bills. That's one thing. Another thing is when you find positive cases, and now even not just the positive cases, they also include those close contacts to the, to the positive cases, they will be transferred to a isolated building. So the, the people will not have access to anything outside that building. So the quarantine really means the quarantine, not just the COVID, people who are tested positive, but also people who had close contact. That also costs money, and that also raised unhappiness from the people. I heard yesterday, there is a very famous university in Shanghai, the whole dormitory, male dormitory, the, the, all the students in the male dormitory were asked to be isolated and transferred to this isolated building. The students refused. And this is not just an isolated story. It happened every day in every place of China. Sometimes they will not just isolate the building. Sometimes they will isolate the whole city. But when, when the city is locked down, it means nobody will travel as long as the lockdown order is, in, is effective. Uh, so that's very costly to the people. So it creates fiscal pressure on the local governments. It also creates unhappiness for the ordinary people. The fiscal problem is, I would say, more problematic for the government because unhappiness is just a 
for those people who are isolated, and they are still small in number compared to the people who are not isolated. The fiscal pressure is very problematic because some of the local governments could not even pay the salary to its employees. They were now they actually asked their employees to take loans to pay the salary to themselves. Right? This sounds very ridiculous, but it happens a lot for many local governments in China, for cities, even for capital cities of some provinces. Um, so it's a huge problem right now. So the expectation is the zero COVID strategy could not sustain very longer because there are fiscal pressure. There are also creates problems for ordinary people. The problem now is how the government is going to phase out from the COVID strategy, zero COVID strategy. Yesterday, the, the central government released a policy document that says that it will make it easier for foreign investors to travel into China. In the past, if you want to travel, travel to China, you have to go through a very difficult procedure. I'm, I'm so familiar with the procedure now because I went through the whole thing. Uh, you have to go to the, the departure city. For example, I traveled from Madison to Los Angeles and take the flight from Los Angeles to, to Beijing. You have to go to Los Angeles three days prior to your departure and stay in Los Angeles. Test it for, for two times during those three days. Upload the results to the embassy. And the embassy is going to greenlight your travel and then you can onboard. And then when you arrive in Beijing, for example, in, in my case, I, I arrived in Shenzhen for, uh, when I first arrived in China, you will stay in a hotel for seven days to self-isolate yourself. It's forced isolation. After those seven days, you will have to go back to your home and then isolate yourself for another three days in your home. And after that, you will be allowed to travel to some places, but not in Beijing because Beijing is much, much more restrictive, but you can travel to other, other places. So it will take you half a month to travel from the United States to China. So now they are trying to, so this is also part of the COVID strategy, uh, zero COVID strategy to reduce the possibility that the virus is imported into, into China and it reduced the foreign investment. Finally, as I'm still teaching in the university, I know more about the students' employment record. In the spring, many of the big cities, they were locked down. For example, Shanghai was locked down. And then in the spring, there is the spring job market. And the spring job market basically didn't function because you can just uh, have, inter have the internet interview, but you cannot interview the person in person. It makes much more difficult for the companies to employ the right person. So the unemployment rate for the young people were very, very high. The number actually reached 19.9%. That's the official data. Uh, we would not expect the situation to be, to be improved significantly, I would say, if we still have the zero COVID strategy. So these are the huge costs that the Chinese governments pursue the zero COVID strategy. Uh, we still do not see the roadmap yet about how to phase out the strategy. So we've talked now about the fiscal and popularity issues being faced by the Chinese government regarding the zero COVID policy. But let's move on to another issue that might also cause similar issues within the state. And that's regarding the Russian invasion of Ukraine. President Xi Jinping has aligned himself with Putin in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How would you summarize China's stance on the war today? And in particular, how is China managing this relationship with Putin while trying to maintain a positive trade relationship with the U.S.? 
Actually, I had a column, I think, uh, recently released on this, exactly on this topic. That's, I think, the reason why my colleagues at the La Follette School urged me to have this interview with, uh, with you guys. So I think, first of all, I want to correct one thing over here. I don't think there is an official alignment between, the, between Beijing and, and the Moscow. I think the Chinese government is taking a very... It's not taking the kind of stance that the Western world is taking, that's for sure. But that's also different from an alignment. I think the story here is very is much more complex than, than the one depicted by alignment. So there are two things faced by the, the, the Chinese government in the Russian conflict. On the one hand, the Chinese government at the beginning of this year, when the conflicts broke out, the Chinese government didn't like what the U.S. government was doing. In the past two years, at the very least, so if we can go back, I think that started from the Trump administration, the U.S. government was trying to influence the Chinese government in a negative way, I would say, by imposing those tariffs, right? by having, for example, urging other countries not to attend the opening ceremony of the Beijing Winter Olympics. That's what the Biden administration did in the winter of 2020. 21. So it basically says that, well, the U.S. government is trying to criticize me, but now in a second second, you are asking me to stand with you to urge the Russian government not to do something. So it's, it's something very, very weird. If you consider this as just a person-to-person -person interaction, you will find it's already very weird. In the previous second, you are taking a very hawkish view towards me. Now you want me to help you something. So the Chinese government didn't want to help the U.S. government from that perspective because the U.S. government is trying to have more conflicts to influence Chinese government in another policy direction. But on the other hand, the Chinese government did not want to officially endorse what the Russian government is doing. There is a very prompt problem in China. I think some, what some of you have alluded to earlier, the Taiwan problem. If the Chinese government is going to endorse what the Russian government is doing or accept the independence of the eastern Ukraine states, it basically says that Taiwan is going can do the same in the future, can declare the independence, it can receive foreign assistance in the future. So the Chinese government never accepted the annexation, for example, of Crimea. It never, it never officially endorsed what the Russian government is doing. So when Xi Jinping met Putin in person in the summer of this year, Putin said to Xi Jinping that Chinese government is taking a balanced position on the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which is different from the United States which is also different from those countries who are very friendly with, with Russia, for example, the Balochos, right? So this is what is going on. And it's more, even more complicated than what I just described, because Russian government really wanted the Chinese government to seem like it's siding with Russian government. I think that's what the Russia is trying to picture to the whole world. Maybe the Chinese government is indeed helping the Russian government by, for example, importing more oils and natural gas. But I don't think it goes beyond that. I don't think the Chinese government is offering military assistance. But the Russian government is trying to depict the Chinese government in a way that is siding with the Russian government. For example, I think that since September, the chairperson of the Chinese legislature, Li Zhangshu, who is also number three person in the Chinese Communist Party, traveled to Moscow to have a visit. And the Russian government actually took the video of that indoor meeting and showed that in the national television, showing that and showing to the whole world that the, the Chinese government is siding with, with the Russian government. 
So the legislator leader of the Chinese government said to his counterpart that the Chinese government understood the difficulty and the stance of the Russian government and has been trying to support the Russian government in various ways. That's the original words. Uh, but they eventually put that to the television and then circulated on Twitter and whatever, and social media. Uh, I think the Chinese government was very unhappy about that. So a few days after Li Zhangshu's visit to Moscow, Putin seemed to be very polite when he met with Xi Jinping and said that there's some confusion you had, President Xi, about our, our conflict with Ukraine, and let me explain those conflicts to you. I think those, among those confusions must include that television footage about what the legislature leader said uh, in a, a closed-door meeting. So I think the whole thing is more complicated, but in all in, all in short, the Chinese government is taking a balanced position. It does not side with the United States for sure. I don't think it officially side with the Russian government either. It is trying to import more natural gas, more oil from the Russian government, partly because it perhaps indeed wanted to help the Russian government, but partly because the Chinese government also wanted to import those natural resources at a lower price. And the interactions between the Russian government and the Chinese government is more complicated than described by just the alignment. The Russian government wants the whole world to understand their relationship as an alignment, but it's more difficult, more complex than alignment, I would say. So let's briefly talk about another contentious relationship between China and Taiwan. Despite some of the off-cuff remarks Biden made in support of Taiwanese independence, the Biden administration has maintained an adherence to the One China policy. However, the ongoing tensions between China and Taiwan have been aggravated recently by American legislators like Speaker Nancy Pelosi going to visit Taiwan. Do you see any progress or changes, and do you think war could erupt over Taiwan? I think there is definitely a rise of concern for the cross-strait relationship between Taiwan and uh, mainland China. I think the problem is not the United States wanted to play the card right now. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's visit and the other legislators' visit to Taiwan definitely heightened the concern for sure. But another concern is that the politicians in Taiwan also wanted to stir the, the emotion in Taiwan. Taiwanese people that they want to seek independence. That's another force. So these two forces from the United States and from Taiwanese per se, both raised the concern in Beijing. So I think the Chinese government is definitely considering what they can do to stop this warring trend in their view, because the stance of the Chinese government is going to unify Taiwan into China. And the military option is more possible than ever. That's my understanding, but I don't have the evidence for that because now the military strength of mainland China is much stronger than ever. And uh, the military strike that the Chinese government performed a few months ago after Nancy Pelosi's visit shows that it has the ability to circle the island. So all of this shows that it has the capacity and it has the concern to do something that raises the possibility of military conflict. What will happen in the future? Uh, let's wait and see. Um, I don't think we have a very accurate prediction right now, but definitely I think the probability of military conflict is much higher than ever.
Well, Professor Lei, I think we're getting close to our time that we have you for today. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on yet that you think we should talk about? I think you have touched on many things already. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, thank you so much for being here. This has been great. Thank you again for accommodating us in your schedule. And Cole has one final wrap-up fun question for you. Yeah, so after talking about the possibility of international war, let's try to end it on a positive note. Could you tell us what it's like to be back living and working in China? Uh, my friends and my family. I think that's, um, that's the most important side of my travel here. Even though, as I described, travel back to China means a lot of cost. Uh, I think that's, that's very important. I do miss my friends over here. Uh, I, I mean, in Madison, I also miss my students. I didn't get the chance to advise them in person. So like we are doing right now, I ha I'm having the Zoom meeting with my undergrads and my PhD students regularly. I do miss my colleagues as well. But for my family and friends, I didn't see them for more than two years until I came back in August. So I'm very, very happy in that sense. And I get the chance to meet Chinese people uh, in person and see how they feel about many policy issues we talked about. I talked with taxi drivers. I talked to to many people, I get to know what is really going on rather than just to read the official data set or statistics released by the Chinese government. I can see how people really react to them. And I will encourage people to do that as well, to talk with ordinary people, not just to read the textbooks and read the data. Well, we really appreciate the, all the insight that you have as a result of not only just being in China now, but all of the knowledge you've accumulated. So thank you again for being with us today. This has been great. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.